listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geisert and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading The Whole Brain Child by Daniel J. Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. Let's get into it. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Here we are, Chapter 4 of The Whole Brain Child. This chapter is called Kill the Butterflies, Integrating Memory for Growth and Healing. So we start out with a story about Tina and her swimming lessons, but we're just going to put that on the back burner for now, circle back to it in a bit, but it is relevant later. This chapter is a lot about memory. And so the first part is talking about two different myths about memories. Myth number one is that memory is a file cabinet. When you think back about your first date or the birth of your child, you can just open the cabinet in your brain and pull out that specific memory. But actually, this is not really how the brain works. Memories are more about associations that we make. So when our brain processes something like maybe an idea or a feeling or a smell, it links that experience with similar experiences from your past. And then that affects how we understand what we see or what we feel. So in essence, memory is the way an event from the past influences us in the present. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. Like, you know, you smell coffee and it reminds you of maybe, you know, the last amazing latte you had or something like that. It really makes you associate that smell with a different feeling or a time. They gave a really good example in the book of finding a pacifier in the couch Depending on who you are and where you are in your life, you might associate that with different things. If you have a baby, you just go like, well, that's where that one went and you move on. But if your (laughs) child is older, you like maybe reminisce and think about when they had to give up their pacifier or, you know, there's a lot of different ways that could go, but it really depends on the person. And, you know, it impacts your present feeling and mood based on the strong associations from the past. So that's all it is, an association. I thought that was a really good example. And then they also talk a lot about neurons that are constantly joining together to create new associations, or they separate, depends on your experience. So as you're building new memories, making new associations, your neurons in your brain are joining together. And what it says about that that I loved is the brain continually prepares itself for the future based on what happened before. Memories shape our current perceptions by causing us to anticipate what will happen next. Our past absolutely shapes our present and future. And that's all for from associations. So again, not a file cabinet, more associations. (laughs) Myth number two is that memory is like a photocopy machine. When you call up a memory, you can see accurate, exact reproductions of what took place in the past. You remember yourself maybe on a first date, exactly what your hair looked like and what your clothes looked like and what perfume you were wearing and or you see the doctor holding up your baby, you know, whatever. That's what you think it's like. But again, this is not true. Whenever you retrieve a memory, it's altered a little bit. So what you remember might be close to what happened, but the very act of recalling the memory changes it. And let me tell you, when I was reading this part, I was really thinking about court cases. And when people go up on the stand and tell their story, I was like, well, (laughs) how much has that story been changed? But yeah, and a good example of this is to think about when you're recounting a story to somebody who was also there and they say like, hey, that's not really how it happened. Your memory is less historical 
fact, more historical fiction. I thought that was an interesting way to think about it. Well, see, when I read that, I was just thinking, my memory is what really happened. And then other people's memory is what they think happened. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Well, to you, it might be historical fact. (laughs) That's how everyone thinks about it, which is funny. But the next time that happens, you can throw out this little tidbit to whoever is disagreeing with you. (laughs) Well, we're both wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Your memory is skewed by the state of mind you were in when the memory was encoded. So that also goes a long way if you were feeling relaxed or if it was really stressful or traumatic, you know, that's also going to impact your memories. Yeah, of course. A lot goes into that very interesting stuff. But overall, what we really need to remember is that memories are more about linkages in the brain and that they are also vulnerable to distortion. Mm -hmm. So the next part, the truth about memory, explicit and implicit memories. Implicit memories are things you do without having to think about them step by step. So the book gives an example of changing a diaper. I like the example of driving a car. You know, we don't get into the car and think like, okay, put my foot on the brake, put the key in the ignition, turn it, ease the foot off the brake, put the, you know, car in gear. No, it's just you've done it so many times. It's an implicit memory. Your body just kind of does it automatically. Do you have any implicit memories, things you do where if you get interrupted in the middle, you do not know how to start? (laughs) The way I fold shirts and uh, the way I fold laundry if I get interrupted mid whatever it is, the shirt or or uh, my fiance's boxer shorts <laughs> underwear, um, I have I can't I I cannot remember what to do. And I was thinking with the car, if a teenager was trying to learn how to drive, I wouldn't be able to tell them how to turn on the windshield wipers you know like there's there are things you do you had to give instructions you wouldn't be able to tell someone how to do it's like your body just knows what to do okay a great example of this you don't have any i no i do i do when i was listening to you talk one came to mind (laughs) um when you go to get your oil changed if you go to like jiffy lube or some kind of place where they're like under your car and they give you so many instructions right at the beginning. They're like, left turn signal, right turn signal, turn on the wipers, turn on, hit the brakes. And I just like forget how to do everything. <laughs> I always feel like so silly. They're like, this girl has no business even driving a car. We're going to tell her she needs this, 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 and this. And she's going to fork up a bunch of money for it. It's true. <laughs> I literally get so flustered that I think the last time the guy just like reached in through my window and just started touching the things and turning on the wipers. (laughs) So yeah, I can relate. (laughs) Next time you just tell that guy, I'm sorry, this is an implicit memory. It's true. I cannot, (laughs) I can't just do it on command. (laughs) Wow. That is really funny. Okay. So as you brought up, explicit memories are like the first time you learn to drive a car. So like a teenager, you know, maybe if you think of driving a car when you're doing it, you don't really know the steps, but you can definitely pull up a memory of maybe the first time in a parking lot you ever tried and how hard you hit the brakes or something like that. So when we talk about memories, we typically are talking about explicit memories, not really implicit. We're just talking about remember this one time. So a really good example, which I loved from the book, was Dan telling a story about an implicit memory. He talks about his wife being pregnant and he would sing a song in English and Russian, a Russian 
lullaby, I think, to the baby. And when the baby was born, he invited over a colleague to do like an informal experiment. And he sang three songs to the baby. And one was the Russian song. Two were unfamiliar. And of course, when he sang the Russian song, the baby was more alert and showed that the baby recognized the song. So this shows that we encode implicit memories throughout our whole lives and exclusively in the first 18 months of life. And I guess even in the womb. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I loved that story. Me too. I thought it was sweet. Implicit memories cause us to form expectations about how the world works. So because neurons that fire together wire together, we create certain mental models based on what's gone on in the past. So if you hug your toddler every day when you come home from work, he's going to have a model in his mind that your return will be filled with affection, connection, love. This is because the implicit memory creates something called priming in which the brain readies itself to respond in a certain way. So priming can also be used negatively. Like, for example, if your son has in the book, they were talking about maybe a piano teacher that criticizes his playing. He's going to start thinking he doesn't like piano or he's not very good at it. And that's because he's getting that input and it's priming his brain to think a certain way. A more extreme version of this could be like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, where an implicit memory of a disturbing experience becomes encoded in a person's brain. And then like a sound or an image can trigger that memory without the person even realizing it's a memory. So implicit memory is essentially an evolutionary process that keeps us safe and out of danger, which is a good thing. But, you know, it can cause other problems if we don't really deal with these memories. So when children seem to be reacting in unusually unreasonable ways or you're just they're flipping their lid, we need to try to figure out if it's maybe an implicit memory that's created a mental model and that we can help them maybe explore that. So now we're going to rewind. Yeah. Back to the beginning of the chapter where we were talking about Tina. So it was just a quick story about a mom, Tina, who signed her son up for swim lessons and he refused to go. The book gives a really great sample conversation after talking about the memories in the book between the mom and the son. And I really loved it. First, they start talking through his past swim class experiences, which were negative. And she was kind of explaining to him in simple terms that our brain forms different associations to different experiences. And for him, she used the example of Dodger Stadium versus swim lessons. So she's like, you know, when you think about going to Dodger Stadium, you feel really happy and good. And when you think about swim lessons, you feel kind of nervous. You know, that's our brain forming different associations. And these associations helped us to survive in our evolutionary history. But now, you know, it's causing problems for him. So then the conversation continues and we see Tina providing her son with some strategies that were also really helpful that he could use when he starts to feel nervous. A good example of those, she used narrative to help his implicit memories become explicit and full of meaning so that they wouldn't act on him with such hidden power. And then once his implicit memories about the unpleasant swimming lessons were brought into the light of awareness, he could pretty easily deal with his present day fears. And this transformation from implicit to explicit is the real power of integrating memory that can bring insight, understanding, and even healing. And, you know, in this example with Tina and her son, it really came together nicely. But what this is making me think of is I have a friend who told me like this exact story about her own daughter and how they had just stopped swim lessons. 
because something kind of negative had happened where the instructor pushed her too far to do something scary, like jump off of maybe a diving block that was higher than she wanted to. And it just caused her to have so much fear that she quit swimming lessons altogether. And I think she really liked it before that. So I was thinking, wow, A, this must be pretty common. I mean, not just traumatic swimming lessons, but (laughs) memories in general. So I was a swim instructor. Oh, I didn't know that. As a teenager, I was a lifeguard and swim instructor. And I feel like I was pretty gentle. But in general, it does seem like swimming is kind of an activity where I think it is really effective to just have kids kind of jump right in, do push themselves. But I could see the way you kind of we kind of just like dunk them in the water, make them jump off of really high things. It could be really scary for some kids. You know, I can see this happening. And I was going to say this happened to me with horseback riding when I was a kid. Mm. I loved horseback riding. And then I went to some horseback riding camp or something like that. And I had a fear of getting sick. I really didn't like throwing up ever. And a girl in my group got really sick and we watched her throw up. And I started to instantly feel like I was going to, you know, like little kids are just weird about that stuff. I felt so sick. And then from that moment forward, anytime I thought about riding horses, I felt nauseous, like could not get past watching this girl get sick when I was riding a horse and it had nothing to do with the horses. You know, kids just take these things, these negative experiences that happen and they glue them together. Whenever I ride a horse, I'm going to get sick or someone else is going to get sick. And I don't think that this was even something my parents really knew had happened or, you know, why I didn't want to ever ride horses again. But it's a weird thing kids do. And I guess that the point in this book is to always be talking through everything. And I know they're going to get into that in this chapter about how to talk about your memories, talk about your day kind of, but just to constantly be talking about everything with your kids, everything that happens in their day, their experiences, so that you can kind of help them process it because kids will do some weird things with their memories. Yeah, those associations, right? And this is also tying in some of what we've already learned in the book. So I like that this chapter is also building on that foundation of like telling the story, helping the child identify their emotions, just like you're saying. I mean, clearly, we should all be talking things through a lot more. So So what is your friend doing about the swimming lessons? Her daughter plays volleyball now. (laughs) That's what I ended up doing too. (laughs) Did you ever get back up on that horse? (laughs) You know, I do think I rode one on the beach one time. I did ride a a horse when I was maybe a teenager, but even now I, when I think about riding horses, it, I feel like, oh, I would probably get sick. (laughs) Oh no. You got to tell yourself the story. (laughs) Integrate the experience. Okay. Well, speaking of integrating, the next section is integrating implicit and explicit assembling the puzzle pieces of the mind. If we aren't aware of our painful experiences, they can become buried landmines that emerge in ways that create fear, sadness, distress, and other painful emotions and bodily sensations. Exactly what we were just talking about. And we can help by shining the light of awareness of those implicit memories and teaching them healthy ways to integrate the experiences. So again, the hippocampus's job is to draw all of their experiences and memories together so that they become assembled pictures that make up our explicit understanding of our past experiences. So the hippocampus is like 
doing all the work of bringing everything together, helping us make sense of it. Think of it as maybe like a master puzzle assembler that links together the jigsaw pieces of the implicit memories. And when the images and sensations of experience remain in implicit only form, when they haven't been integrated, they exist in isolation from one another as just a jumbled mess. So not helpful, chaotic. And instead of having a clear and a whole picture, a completed jigsaw puzzle, our implicit memories remain scattered and you just don't, you cannot see what is happening there at all. And that leads to lacking clarity about our own unfolding narrative, which explicitly defines who we are. And what's even worse is these implicit only memories continue to shape the way we look at and interact with our here and now reality. So they affect the sense of who we are from moment to moment all without our even being aware that they're affecting the way we interact with the world. So that was something that I was really taking away was people are not even realizing where these fears come from. And this is it, you know, so the hippocampus's job is to bring it all together. Mm -hmm. Tina was really helping her son's hippocampus do its job when she retold the story about the past swim class because it helped him to turn the memory from implicit to explicit and was a really good example of that. And when we don't offer a place for children to express their feelings and recall what happened after an overwhelming event, their implicit only memories can remain in disintegrated form leaving the child with no way to make sense of the experience. But we can help the kids integrate their past into their present, and then they can make sense of what's going on inside themselves and gain control over how they think and behave. So I always love giving the child the control. And the more you promote this type of memory integration in the child, the less often you'll see these big, irrational, downstairs brain responses to what's happening now that are really leftover reactions from the past. Mm -hmm. And then they talk about HALT which I love, love an acronym, honestly. <laughs> so HALT stands for, is the child hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? So, you know, basic bodily needs, thinking about basic needs always first. And again, you know, I was thinking this could be hard for SLPs in general because we really know little about the child's life outside of school. We only kind of know what they tell us. So I kind of found that an event has to be so traumatic that they're like coming into the speech room bursting to tell about something that happened. However, I say consult with the child's teacher. That's always my go-to because the teacher often knows a lot more that's going on with the kids. So sometimes if a child seemed off, I would definitely reach out to the parent in an email and just ask if anything was going on that I could help with or that I needed to know about because I noticed the behavior was a little different or the teacher was sometimes a good resource for that. So now we're going to get into our whole brain strategies. Continuing on from the last chapter, whole brain strategy number six, using the remote of the mind, replaying memories. Love this concept. So instead of Fast forward and forget, try, rewind, and remember. Kind of catchy. The remote of your mind can fast forward, rewind, pause, or replay certain parts of an experience. And it gives the child, again, some control, love that, over reliving an unpleasant memory. So he gave this really interesting example about David's son, Eli, who every year Eli and his dad built a Pinewood Derby car would do this every year. And then, you know, all of a sudden he didn't want to do it. And the dad remembered that an incident had happened a couple of months ago where Eli had brought a pocket knife to the park and his friend had, I think his friend's name was Ryan, 
Ryan had used the knife at the park and it had slipped and cut his leg. So Eli was sensitive and he saw his friend being taken away in an ambulance. That's pretty traumatic. It was really scary. He didn't know if his friend was going to be okay. And then he had added guilt because he was the one who had brought the knife without asking his parents. So he had a lot of feelings about this. And now he wants nothing to do with the tools, the sharp cutting tools that are required to make this car. So the dad was observant enough to put two and two together. And he retold the story with his son, allowing him to use this remote of the mind, like pausing, skipping over parts that were too scary, probably the injury. And then at the end, he reminded him, you know, the story has a happy ending. Ryan was okay. And he gently prompted Eli to go back to the parts he had skipped. And I believe in the book, they said this took kind of a while, like still skipping and pausing, but going back until eventually the whole story had been told. And this really helped Eli to release tension around the story and to integrate the memory from implicit to explicit. And then he was able to build the derby car with his dad. So I love that happy ending. And by introducing them to the remote of the mind, which can control their internal DVD player, you make the storytelling process much less scary because you offer them some control over what they deal with so they can interact with it at their own pace, which I like that so much. And then they can look at an experience that may be scared or angered or frustrate them without having to immediately relive it scene by scene. I love the remote of the mind. And I have not made it yet, but I'm thinking I want to make a little visual for this. I would love that. <laughs> that you can use with kids when you're telling a story. Oh, wait. Oop. Rewind. <laughs> too far. You know? <laughs> that would be really cute. It's so cool to be able to, yeah, to go back and, and retell a story and just skip or fast forward or jump back, you know? Yeah. I could see it being really helpful, especially working on narratives. For me, a lot of this stuff applies just to pragmatic kids where you're talking a lot about past experiences and was there ever a time where you did this? So yeah. I'm going to talk about that in a second because I have some more thoughts on that. But first, I wanted to get into whole brain strategy number seven. Remember to remember making recollection a part of your family's daily life. This is great for families. And also, I saw many applications in our work as SLPs. So instead of saying, how was your day? Try to remember to remember. Just helping your child to remember moments daily is a great thing. And it's good practice for when they're really going to need it. So maybe nothing bad happened that day. But if they practice day after day, then when a day comes where something happened that they really need to talk about, they'll be experienced with it. Instead of saying just how was your day, to which children mostly say good or fine, and that's it. You can ask more specific questions. Did you play with Charlotte at school today? What did you guys do during recess? Did you have art today? Etc. How many times have you been in an IEP where a parent tells you, well, I ask him how his day was and he just says, fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Good. I feel like I hear that so much. Oh, yes. Parents just are like, they won't talk to me that, you know, so I like, they give so many examples and I do think I'm starting to see, I hear the parents that I work with now, I hear the questions that they ask. They'll ask things like, what was really funny at school today? Or, you know, they ask really specific questions to get their kids talking. So I know that this is an idea that is spreading, but you know, I don't know about you. I just, I heard that so much from parents. 
he won't talk to me. She won't, she won't tell me about what's going on at school. She won't tell me about her day. And so I like that they give all these examples of ways of things that we could tell parents. We could give parents a little handout, how to talk to your kid about their day. (laughs) Good questions you can ask. How to get your kid talking. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I know that there are conversation decks that you can buy too that are meant for like you put them on your dining room table or your coffee table and they're just some conversation starters too but I don't know if those are necessarily specific to your child's experiences which is the whole point right like this gives the child a chance to really tell their own stories which helps with that meaning making process and improves their ability to understand their past and present experiences but I love the idea of a handout just some guiding questions. Also just for like closeness, you know, bonding between parent and child. And then I don't know. I love that. Just like what I was saying about, you know, the horseback riding or even the examples with the swimming, there's no way parents can be expected to help their kids process some of the memories they have or the experiences they have because they can't be with their kids all the time. So figuring out ways to really understand what has happened with your kid each day, what they're experiencing and getting them in the habit of talking and talking and talking about it, retelling everything. It can just, it would just be so helpful to help kids integrate their brain more. Yeah, absolutely. The book had some good suggestions for ways to kind of dig deeper. Tell me three things about your day, two that are true and one that is not. And then I'll try to guess the two that (laughs) happened, which I guess it depends on how silly the child is. (laughs) I, I could see that being helpful or like one mom who would ask at dinner, tell me one good thing from today, one not so good thing and one act of kindness that you performed for someone. I thought that was sweet too. They also talked about like making a memory book, which, you know, if the child is crafty. I think that's great. Plus it's physical. You can bring it with you places and you can go through it over and over again great way to relive memories. And I was brainstorming a little bit about like ways to weave this into our SLP sessions. I personally always like starting with a question just to get the kids talking. And so we can build a little rapport. I love asking like, how was your weekend? But again, sometimes you would get crickets or one word responses, or I would always (laughs) have like one kid I would count on to give me a little bit more. Or you could ask about something fun, like especially if there's a milestone birthday, you could ask, you know, or whatever. How was your birthday or how was your trip? Just to get them talking, you know, but tell me about something fun you guys did in class that week. Or maybe even like a five-minute warm-up share session at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You could use pragmatic conversation starters. Tell about a time when you felt frustrated. Tell about a time when you had to try really hard at something. And of course, then my brain is thinking, wow, that could apply to so many of the kiddos on our caseloads. That could be good for language kids. That could be good for our tick kids. If they're at the conversation or the sentence level, maybe even the phrase level, fluency kiddos, you know, all all these different students who can really benefit from just sort of a little narrative practice. So I saw lots of opportunities for that. But what I love about the book, saying is simply by asking questions and encouraging recollection, you can help your kids remember and understand important events from the past, which will help them better understand what's happening to them in the present. So 
just building strong foundations. Then they have a little comic which shows some really nice puzzle pieces like this really nice analogy about the hippocampus and how it puts all the puzzle pieces together and it can help us to understand why something might be upsetting. Like the little girl is scared of dogs and it's because one time a big dog barked at her. She's able to put together those pieces and understand that was about that one time, not about dogs she meets now. And she can move forward and kind of, you know, pet new dogs. (laughs) (laughs) And then we're kind of at the end. So integrating ourselves, moving our own memories from implicit to explicit. Dan gave a really beautiful story that I was like, wow, you know, it's a great example of how these things can even impact adults. He had his first baby and he just had a really irrational reaction to his young son's crying, which we've all been there. Like crying infants are not easy, but this, his reaction was over the top. So he was kind of trying to think like, where could this have come from? And he remembered he had a pediatric internship where he and his colleague had to draw blood from very young children. And one of them had to hold the child down while the other did the blood draw. And it was just pretty traumatic for him because they had to do it over and over. And, you know, I'm sure that's really stressful and hard, but he never integrated the experience to move it from an implicit memory to an explicit memory. So once he realized that, he talked to some of his coworkers and, you know, he was able to kind of process it and move through it. But it's worth it to really examine your own reactions to see, you know, if something seems to be bigger or more intense than it should be, what's the source of that? And I also loved they had like a nice little plug. If you want to learn more about this, feel free to check out Dan's book, Parenting from the Inside Out, which goes much more in depth about, you know, mining our own memories to make connections between them and our current behaviors. I I think I might check it out because it was intriguing for me. Yeah. I'm unless it applies to dogs. (laughs) I, I won't be getting it. It might. You never know. Your dog parenting might benefit. (laughs) Well, that's it for chapter four of The Whole Brain Child. Everybody who is a Patreon subscriber, feel free to head over to our Patreon where we're going to have our storytelling remote uploaded there, as well as a handout of questions for parents to dig a little deeper with their children. So if you're not a Patreon subscriber, Feel free to head over to our website or to Patreon. Find us there and sign up. Thanks for listening. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast. It's a community. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP Book Club to join the discussion after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? You can become a Patreon member by going to patreon.com slash the SLP Book Club. You'll get access to bonus content, including chapter summaries and amazing printables that can be used directly with the children you work with in speech therapy. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to theslpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at theslpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club. 